welcome to Swarthmore Presbyterian Church's podcast. This is your host, Alex Evangelista. We are delighted you are here, and don't forget to like, subscribe, and share our podcast. You are now listening to a sermon recorded for July 18, 2021, titled Splitting the Atom by Reverend Sarah Cooper Seawright. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I find that some stories come so weighted with cultural baggage and years of interpretation that it feels nearly impossible to hear them unencumbered. For instance, in reading the paper last weekend, I encountered the review of an upcoming book cleverly titled, Forget the Alamo. The aim of the book is to re-examine the now folkloric tale of the Battle of the Alamo. So, if you remember well your seventh grade Texas history, which you do, don't you? You'll know that this was a battle that took place in 1836 as Mexican President Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana arrived with his troops in an attempt to regain the land from settlers who had become a bit unruly. Though the way the story is told, this is as part of a larger story of the state's independence. It was in this telling, a handful of rugged, freedom-loving Texans who gave them a fight at the Alamo, a battle that they lost, incidentally, though Texas still went on to gain independence. This tale spun off larger-than-life heroes like Jim Bowie and Colonel William B. Travis and Davy Crockett, whose names can be found on just about anything and everywhere as you drive across the state. It gave a rallying cry to Sam Houston and years later, a lucrative income to John Wayne. It also did that for the state of Texas, of course, as millions of tourists, including myself, amble up the river walk to the old stone fortress still standing. A book like this one that I read the review for is among many right now. And I think indicative of the larger cultural moment. Of course, true scholarship across disciplines has long been defined by the pursuit of more precise and more nuanced understanding. Yet, it feels significant to see this rising tide within the mainstream returning to these stories, so many of which hold significant weight, and in many cases, heavily influence existing identities both for individuals and communities. The significance in this moment, I hope, is that we might reshape how we learn to relate to one another, moving always, evolving ever towards more honest and vulnerable and hopefully truer kinds of relationship. For we know It is just in this relationship that we were created. Or so goes this telling of Genesis 2. From historic folktale to the unapologetically mythic, 
This second part of this second genesis of creation is quite distinct from the first. Though we are invited that rather than see this as a parallel story to Genesis 1, Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann invites us to read this instead as a more intense reflection upon the implications of creation for humanity. In this telling, creation forms not by the word of God, but from the work of God, which shapes the very dust of the earth. Made not in the image of God, our creator, in this telling, all is made in the image of Ha-Adama, the ground. A grittier, more tactile tale as distinct from that one that is so poetic and ethereal. We pick up this morning with the first human set in the garden made by God. Their name, a play on words, Adam, from Ha'adama, yet not fully distinct from the ground from which it was made. So we get the first human being amid the first garden, tied by their one in the same creator and substance from which they were both formed. That is, until the human, this time distinct from the rest of creation, was given three things by God. A vocation to till and to keep. A freedom to eat of all things. And a boundary, except from the tree of knowledge. From this came more. Almost immediately, God noticed that human was not meant for isolation. So creatures were formed, an agency was given to human to name them. Not yet good. God put back to rest the first human and through careful and precise surgery created the second. Splitting the Adam were we to be playful with the language as God was playful with the act inspiring poetry from the very first and a new identity for both man and woman. Distinct now in name from the ground, Ish and Isha, but still bound to it and to one another and of course to God. It's striking to me the interwoven nature of all creation encapsulated in these 10 verses, and yet I think it is so easily missed. We might prefer the more ethereal to this dirty and mucked up, heavy laden origin. Yet, remember on Ash Wednesday, when we receive on our foreheads the dust and the reminder that it is from dust we have come, it is right here in this text where we get that language, that identity. From the dust and the, earth and the dirt and the atoms of the earth and the universe, everything comes into being. In a world where even the smallest little thing can make us feel incredibly distinct from one another, where carefully differentiated identity is the value of our day, in reality, in Genesis 2, the storyteller and geneticists of today align towards one thing. We are, in the end, not all that different from one another. Cosmos, ground, creature, 
human, only by the smallest degrees are we distinct. Carrying within us at the atomic level connection scientists have only begun to scratch the surface of. It's why some of my friends in ministry will give not only ashes, but ashes mixed with a little bit of glitter on Ash Wednesday. From stardust we were made. Our similarities are vast. But, of course, it is the distinctions that loom large. It is the distinctions that we are much more willing to read into this story. God as separate from man, man as separate from woman, human as separate from creature and earth and dirt. The distortions begin here, but the ball rolls quickly into interpretation that is formed by years and centuries of cultural presumption and practice. Centuries of searching for our origin and the locus of power and dominion and exceptionalism. The intricate connectivity is so easily missed that it's good to come back to this with new eyes. Excavating the rotted ground in which festers patriarchy and false binary and discrimination pulling up the weeds of centuries of human domination over and abuse of the created world, turning over the dirt to see that indeed there is good soil beneath. For here is where we find the rich soil and the origins of community. Community has given breath and life and form by God. Community as marked with purpose and freedom and accountability. Community as it is conceived by God for creation and for creatures. In contrast to Genesis 1, creation is not good until companions are made for the human in the garden. Did you notice that? After setting one in the garden, God notes that it is not good that humans should be alone. God creates with purpose and intent. God understands even before we do how much we tend towards distinction and differentiation. God created us for this because God is no different in God's self, creator, Christ, and Holy Ghost. Three in one, lockstep in the dance from beginning to end, the span of which they only know. God created us in community because God knows no other way to be. God knew it was good. So created, a yearning deep within us cries out for it and for the particular gift of feeling like we belong. It's so evidently a part of us, community and belonging, that they are selling points, it seems, everywhere we turn. The communal experience of the home run bell at Citizens Bank Park, the 9 a.m. regulars at Hobbs, Swarthmore on the 4th of July, swim clubs and supper clubs and book clubs and rotary club, the myriad communities of runners and bikers and kayakers, bird watchers, garden tenders, gamers, actors, music makers, and on and on to which we belong for support and nurture, companionship, friendship, and joy. 
We can find community in person or, of course, as we have learned from this year online. Social media was created with this purpose of community, though we find flaws, no doubt, as all things created by our hands. We, though, seek connection and community wherever it can be found. Even the most introverted among us, we just prefer smaller groups, that's all. We yearn for it and plan for it. Community helps us decide where we want to live and what schools we'll attend or send our children to, how we are civically engaged, and of course, where we choose to engage our faith. And yet, even after a year of forced isolation, even with this yearning for connection and belonging deep within us, it is also a burden. Remember that as much as we yearn for community, we are also driven for distinction and differentiation. And we know community is frustratingly never perfect. The commitment is too high. Conflicts arise. We don't like the way someone said this or did that. It wasn't inclusive enough or activist enough or it was just too political. We have hurt feelings. We have our feelings hurt. We make assumptions. We abuse boundaries. We move from one to the next because at some point the first stopped feeling quite right or circumstance meant we had to leave it behind. Sometimes we juggle so many different communal spaces that we don't actually feel like we belong in any of them. It makes me wonder if the ways we have come to consume community, the ways it has been distorted in our understanding has actually led us to a more impoverished expectation of it. Much like that oh-so-familiar story buried under the layers of misinterpretation, it is right, it is good for us to ask again, what is the form of community that God intends for us? The church has tried to get at this our whole life. In the earliest post-resurrection days, scripture tells us that we were a mutual community with apostles sharing everything in common and all were cared for. As our influence grew and our witness became truly global, we were communities of accountability and orthodoxy, standard bearers for morality and builders of social infrastructure. For significant periods of history, we were the center of community life and care and education and assistance. Though in the latter half of this last century and now, it is clear that we are trying to find our unique space amid all the other offerings of community on the table. This is a good thing. To be shaken from the center, to be called to examine our communal roots, it is good that we as people of faith can devolve. We don't need to feel like what we do has to be in the fashion of what others do. We might remind ourselves that church is not meant to be a social club, an interest group, a society of friends, a gathering of the like-minded. 
No, rather the church is the body of Christ in all its bodily-ness. The arms and the legs, the hair and the fingers, the tongue and the toenails. Body made from dust and atoms, the image of the ground. God created it. We said at the very beginning, four generations of bodies inhabit these pews. Faith communities broadly are some of the only truly and consistent intergenerational spaces we inhabit these days. Further, church is one of the few places where we can go where we are not quite sure that the person sitting next to us votes exactly the same way that we do, or contributes to the same causes, or adheres to the same ideology, or even uses the same pronouns for God. And still, every week, we come to this shared space, to this shared table. We share our prayers with one another and for one another. We share a mission out into the world and follow one another. The same name of God upon our lips, the same spirit urging us on, we seek justice and love kindness and attempt our very best to walk humbly with our God. Friends, church can be a community that is distinct. It should be. What sets us apart is manifest in how we are called to be together. That pattern set by God from the very beginning for God's created community, people had purpose and freedom and accountability to one another and to creation and to God. We share this life in this world so that when floods rage in Germany or fires in California or homes are subsumed by rising oceans in Bangladesh, our bodies feel it. Our collective hearts break. In church, we can be community that is dusty and dirty and difficult and loving and gracious and grateful. We have to work at it. Community like God intended does not just maintain itself. Look into the next chapter in Genesis 3 and we know how easily our delight can turn to accusation. We have to know that our mission, our purpose together is larger than any one person or marvelous ministry or engaging program, or even larger than the history that binds us and our families here. Being church in the most simple terms is to be acknowledging that we all share one creator and know ourselves to be indistinguishably tied to one another and to this good world. We cling to this knowledge as we cling to one another, and we are assured in the graciousness of God who designed all of this, everything, everybody, with a love so fierce that God will never let go. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this sermon, recorded for July 18, 2021, titled, Splitting the Atom, by Rev. Sarah Cooper Seary. We'll see you soon, and may the peace of Christ be with you.